Get ready for the smartest bundle in streaming. Six streaming services for the intellectually curious. Featuring Curiosity Stream with the best collection of documentary films and TV shows. Psalm TV and great stories from the world of wine. Taste Made for the fun side of food and travel. Topic with the best thrillers and crime stories. And so much more. From nature to history, technology to food, mystery to adventure. Get six streaming services for one low price. And less than $6 a month, it's the best deal in streaming. Learn more and sign up now at smartbundle.com. I live in an apartment farm where the windows and adjacent buildings meet at uncomfortably even angles. If the shades are all up and the lights are all on, you can see just about everything going on inside. Sometimes, late at night, I'll wake for a glass of water from the sink and notice my neighbor at his kitchen table in the unit across from me. The man is balding and middle-aged. He ordinarily wears a cream-colored robe or some faded shade of red. He always has a glass of milk at the ready, joined occasionally by a fat cigar, aimed for the skylight. His horn-rimmed glasses and neat five o'clock shadow are about as unremarkable as any other working Joe this side of the New York-New Jersey state line. And yet something about this guy always intrigued me. We never offer each other anything more than an awkward wave hello. We never attempt to speak. But some nights I'll sit down in the kitchen too with a glass of my own cold milk and a cigarette snuck from an old pack in the dresser. Sometimes when you're feeling lonely, it's nice to see someone else's feeling lonely too. But one night, last month, my midnight companion gestured for me to join him. I didn't really know what to do. The wave was friendly and welcoming. There was no malice behind it. He didn't look annoyed by my staring. He just looked like he wanted to talk. I thought about the prospect for a couple minutes. I checked on the baby, kissed my wife goodnight, and put on a cream-colored robe of my own. Then I stumbled down the stairs, out the atrium doors, and into the shivering cold autumn air. I found my new friend waiting in the lobby of his adjacent building. His bespectacled stare sent uncomfortable shivers up my spine. He waved me forward past the security guard, and I followed him wordlessly into the elevator. We waited in awkward silence for a moment before he pressed the button for five, same as mine. Cold out there, I muttered. Thought it might heat up over the weekend. The man smiled wanly in agreement. The elevator doors opened wide, and he stepped forward to proceed down the hall as the cream robe sashayed behind him. I hesitated. Relax, kid, the man chuckled. The night guards saw you come in. I think you'll make it out of here alive. Why did you want me to come over? I asked. I hope you didn't mind. He shrugged. No, it looked like you wanted someone to talk to. Maybe I do too. I chuckled. Either you've got great vision or I'm just that transparent. Another sly smile. Little bit of both. My name is Brandon. And you? Michael. He nodded. And now we know each other. We're not strangers anymore. So how about a Mike? One sleepless dad to another? I stepped out from behind the wide metal doors. You got whiskey for that milk? Brandon nodded. Kalawa, too. And with that, we bounded down the hall towards Unit 21C. The halls in the building were well lit and uniquely decorated with floral landscape paintings and glass vases that looked as though they held nothing inside. 
A scrubbed-up nurse walked past just towards the end, and Brandon gave her a courteous nod. He fumbled for his keys before the door to his apartment opened. It was hard not to gasp. I was immediately greeted by the very essence of luxury. In the dining room, a magnificent chandelier dripped down from the ceiling to meet a luxurious oak table. In the den, Persian rugs lined at incessantly perfect right angles to cover scratch-free wood floors. Beautiful china set behind spotless stained glass. A massive 70-inch LCD TV sat perched on the wall in between various gold and silver shaded baubles and picture frames. The place looked like the Ritz got trapped inside a tiny two-bedroom space. Let's see about that Caucasian, Jackie. Brandon joked over his shoulder while heading for the liquor cabinet. Big Lebowski. What a film. I've been hooked on the things ever since. I assume you want yours on the rocks? I said that I did. Good man. Brandon returned with a speckled glass and a pair of large cigars. He set us up at the kitchen table before fussing through the cabinets for a pack of matches. After a moment, he grabbed a seat and lit his own in a perfect, circular motion. Aim for the window. I nodded and went to work on my own. So how can I help you, Brandon? A woman named Melissa came into my clinic today. He started. You're a doctor? He nodded solemnly. Melissa lost her husband and young son in a car accident a few months back. Awful, I mumbled. Must be awful seeing that sort of thing every day. Brandon offered the same away and smile before taking a generous swig of his white Russian. She comes to my office for checkups, nothing more, he murmured through a cloud of smoke. The accident severed her spine. She'll never walk again. But we still need to check the stitches and other various injuries for signs of infection. Our job is to make sure Melissa's horrifying situation does not get worse. That's all. I can't imagine staying positive, I added. Sounds exhausting. Brandon nodded. You don't. I was confused. Well, don't you have to? I asked. As a doctor, I mean, isn't it part of the goal to keep your patients feeling positive? You can wear a mask, he muttered. One of those pesky masks that say all the right things, you know, be happy, make yourself happy, life will get better. The night is always darkest just before the dawn. You've read all the fortune cookies. You've heard the thousand cliches and adages and parables and crappy pop songs on the radio, extolling people to be the best their little selves, even when the sky's raining down crap on the only things that matter. Brandon coughed through his cigar and chuckled in disgust. So you say stuff like that? I puffed my cigar wordlessly for a moment. Are you one of those nihilists? I joked. Like, in the film. I'm a realist, he snapped angrily. Real enough to know that stupid crap like that would not work with Melissa. I'm sorry, a dumb joke. What did you say to her? Brandon waved a hand as if to tell me it was all right. We keep it to the medicine. Don't wet the stitches. Make sure to take the right pain medication at the right times. Do you have a caretaker? If you don't have a caretaker assigned, the hospital can provide one for you. You know, stuff like that. Helps to avoid the deeper psychological questions. Those types are best left for the shrinks. I considered his comments for a second. Sounds cold. He nodded. Empathy is a dangerous thing. People can't be expected to hold all of the world's pain. Neither can doctors. There's just too much of it to go around. Brandon took another gulp of liquid courage. 
But this morning, Melissa tricked me. How'd she do that? We were talking about dreams. Vivid dreams can be an unfortunate side effect of concussions, unfortunately. So I needed to find a way to distinguish what is vivid and what is ordinary in her case. I asked for details about the dreams. And? Melissa told me she dreamed about her son. He was stuck inside a wall of water and she could not reach him. I gulped. Sounds pretty vivid. It sounded like something that needed a second opinion. Likely a psych follow-up. I told her as much. She didn't take it well. How not well? Brandon sighed. She took a fork and stuck it into an open electrical outlet. Holy hell. Never seen anything like it in 20 years. The current from the wall slipped through the fork and into her already broken body. Melissa's heart stopped for exactly 100 seconds before we were able to get a crash cart into the room and revive her. Horrible. I'll admit that I lost it a little bit. The mask slipped, so to speak. I had seen and treated this woman for months. I felt like I knew her. I knew her dreams, even. And I felt like, maybe, maybe the psych and the medicine and everything else had really helped her turn a corner. She talked about dating and having sex again. She talked about starting her life over. All of that work evaporated. At least, in my mind. The moment she decided to kill herself. So what did you do? I broke a thousand protocols. I followed Melissa's case through the ER and into recovery. Later during the day, she somehow regained consciousness, and I lied to her on call, just so I could sneak in to see her. Brandon took a long drag of his cigar. I wanted to shake her. I wanted to yell and scream and tell her what an idiot she was for wasting the small amount of time we get. I wanted to tell her there was nothing after this, and if there was, it sure as hell wouldn't be any better than what we got now. She lied to me. She lied to everyone. I was furious. Brandon got up to make another drink. I sense a butt coming. He nodded. But when I went to see Melissa, she was happy. That is the only way I can describe it. Happy? She sat there in this hospital bed, covered in wires and IV lines, head to toe, burn marks everywhere, looking like a damn horror show with this big, dumb grin on her face. Brandon sighed and started to stir a cocktail. She told me she just had the best 100 seconds of her life. I laughed. I later regretted that. She told me that she saw her husband. She saw her son, too. They were playing on this beautiful white beach covered with pebbles in front of a massive blue ocean. Her little boy always loved to ride this fire-red boogie board through the waves. She could see the kid clear as day out in the surf. And every wave would always be just the right height to bring him safely back to shore. He just looked so happy that Melissa fell at peace. Brandon sniffled a bit. She spoke to her husband as well. He was at the beach too. He forgave her for everything. He knew it was an accident. He knew they would all be together again. She just had to wait a little while. He paused. All of those aching feelings of guilt, misery, and heartache that she kept locked up inside her gut melted away as easily as those perfectly sized waves pushing up against the sand. Another pause. 
the best 100 seconds of her life. I considered this story along with the last drops of my Caucasian and the stub of a cigar burning its way towards my fingertips. Brandon got up to stir a third drink. Something didn't seem right. Something still seemed missing. But why did Melissa try to kill herself at a hospital? Brandon looked longingly towards a picture frame resting up against the coffee maker. A younger man sat perched with a little girl hanging off his lap. Brandon dipped his fingers into his full glass and smiled sadly. Then he swirled his whole hand around slowly. Maybe she didn't want to die. How do you mean? He considered that for a moment. Maybe she just wanted to visit for a little while. He stopped stirring and looked at me with hopeful blue eyes. Hey, you have your cell phone, don't you? I told him that I did. And you saw the nurse next door? I nodded. Good. The next few moments passed faster than any in my life. I didn't anticipate what Brandon planned to do in front of me that night. That was stupid. I didn't see his hand reach out for the outlet. That was unlucky. But the sparks that flew through the air and the stomach-turning stench of burning skin painted an already perfectly pretty picture of what had happened. I turned to vomit, but Brandon stayed put in that position, as if his arm was welded to the outlet, while bolts of white-hot electricity vibrated up and down his soaked hand. His heart stopped for 200 seconds. The police and EMS arrived in record time. The nurse next door rushed in at the sound of my screeching, but we were too late. We were all too late. My new friend died on his kitchen floor with a glass of good scotch still swimming by his side. He left behind a divorcee and no living children. A month later, I can't bring myself to idealize or romanticize the guy. Truth be told, his actions were selfish, especially considering the trauma they put me and everyone else through. Sometimes I hope Brandon got to see his beach one last time. And then sometimes, I still see his kitchen light on at night. Jerry was the closest thing I had to a brother. We'd spent a good portion of our lives together, having grown up across from each other with just a fence separating us. He was the kind of kid who got into a fair amount of trouble, yet you couldn't help but tag along with him on whatever misadventure he'd gotten himself into that day. We followed each other through life, graduating high school and rooming together in college. I'd even been the best man at his wedding. When Jerry had asked me to be the godfather to his newborn daughter, I'd jumped at the chance. With her sunny blonde tangled hair, freckles and gray-green eyes, Maisie was almost her father in miniature. I know at that age you expect some similarities, but their movements and emotions were almost synchronized. She was Jerry's whole world. He talked about her all the time. His phone screensaver and image of her smiling face. One of the many pictures he had taken of her over the years. As much as he and his wife loved her, it was obvious they needed a break. I can't remember the last time that Annie and I went out, he'd mused one dulling Friday evening over the open neck of a beer bottle. I thought your partying days were done, old man, I smirked. He shot me a deadpan look before taking another swig. God, no. 
My liver's taken enough abuse for one lifetime. I mean a real night, dinner, and a movie. Like, back when we were dating. Don't get me wrong, I love Maisie with all my heart. But we barely have enough time for each other. Staring down at my half-finished brew, the idea dawned on me. Hey... How about this Friday? You and Annie get dressed up, go to that nice Italian place on 3rd Street, and I'll take care of Maisie, I offered. His eyes expanded. Really? You'd do that? He exclaimed. I nodded, my head tingling with a pleasant warmth from my recent buzz. I figured you needed it, I shrugged. Jerry threw his head back with a laugh. God, I don't deserve you sometimes, he muttered. And you know it. I wasn't a complete novice. I had some experience taking care of my younger siblings growing up, and Jerry and Annie trusted me. I still felt some apprehension, but I was determined to do it for them. When I'd arrived at their house on that Friday night, the first thing, I was tackled by Maisie into a crushing hug the second I'd walked through that door. Her parents had followed, dressed in their best clothing. Their former tiredness had vanished replaced by bright smiles. It was as if the years had been stripped off them and they were back in their carefree early twenties. They'd run me through Maisie's routine. Dinner was in the fridge. Maisie liked her carrots to be cut into little pieces. Bedtime was at seven, and she couldn't sleep without a purple dragon called Snuffles. It was everything I'd been expecting. Try not to traumatize her too much, Jerry called back from the open doorway as he headed out to the car. Not as much as you probably have, I shot back. I heard his laughter from inside the car as they backed out of the driveway. I adapted to Maisie's routine better than I expected. She was at an age when she was starting to form complete sentences and couldn't wait to tell me every random detail she saw. It was nice just to forget all about my adult problems for a while, watching Disney movies with a babbling preschooler. It took me back to my own childhood. As I'd been washing the dishes, I heard Maisie whispering. Laying down the wet towel against the kitchen counter, I peered out from behind the doorframe. Maisie stood talking to nothing in the darkness in the open doorway to the living room, leading to the stairs. Her hushed voice drifted up to my ears, words filtering in. It's okay. He's my uncle, the one I told you about. She extended a tiny hand towards the empty air. He won't hurt you. Come on. Too amused by it all to stay quiet anymore, I decided to play along. Who's your friend over there? I called out. Maisie whirled around, blinking in surprise before her eyes lit up. You can see Olivia too? The whole time, I nodded. Maisie, don't be rude. Invite her in. She looks cold. Maisie ran back with her hand outstretched, guiding her invisible companion along. She pulled out another tiny plastic chair alongside her own before sitting down. This is Olivia, she said, gesturing to the empty space next to her. She lives upstairs. I knelt down over the empty chair to the height where Maisie was sitting. Nice to meet you, Olivia, I said. After a few seconds of awkward silence, Maisie leaned into my ear. She says it's nice to meet you, too. It's okay. She's real quiet. Sometimes I can't hear her either. I bit back a laugh. Would Olivia like anything to eat? I asked, pointing to the open kitchen. 
Maisie continued her conspiratorial whispers before turning back to me. She's too scared to take any food from the kitchen, she chirped. I raised an eyebrow at this but continued along. She doesn't have to be scared. Nobody's going to hurt her here. Maisie went quiet. I cleared my throat, trying to shift the sudden discomfort that had descended around us as I looked at the empty chair. So, are you two good friends? She bobbed her head along with a gap-toothed smile. Yeah, she replied. Better than Daddy and me when we were little? Her nodding grew more vigorous, to the point I thought her little head would pop off her shoulders. The best! My mouth fell open, gasping in mock surprise. Maisie exploded into giggling at my expression. Wow, you really like her, I exclaimed. Maisie nodded. Yeah, she says she waited so long for me. As the evening continued, I found myself more than content to watch Maisie's antics as she played and talked with Olivia. Soon, bedtime arrived, and albeit some minor protests, Maisie went upstairs. While tucking her in, I noticed her glancing around my shoulder at the open doorway. Her little face was devoid of all the carefree joy, pale and drawn, in an expression that belonged on someone much older. Discomfort tingled down my spine and I turned around only to see nothing there. Has Olivia gone to bed? I asked, trying to sound nonchalant. From under the mass of butterfly-patterned bedding, Maisie shook her head. Olivia doesn't sleep anymore. She just cries a lot. The sensation that had been long growing in my throat tightened further. Even though I wanted to drop the subject and go downstairs, I had to persist. Have you known Olivia for long? She blinked. Forever. She lived here before me, in the room at the end of the hall. She was supposed to be my sister, but Mommy and Daddy didn't like her. She said all this in a matter-of-fact way that only a five-year-old is capable of, who readily accepted everything as fact of life, with no idea of any social norms. She went on, oblivious to my own open-mouthed expression. One day, she spilled her juice, so Daddy hit her till she stopped moving. That's why her head is all red. They did a bad thing, so they put her away in the darkness, but she didn't leave. When I was born, she was there when she brought me home. When I was a baby, she used to look in my crib all night long. She's scared of my mommy and daddy. She made me promise not to tell them about her. She turned to look at me. Do all adults see people like her? It was a while before I regained my voice. It came out hoarse and stumbling as my mind worked furiously to process what the hell I had just listened to. Sounds like you've got someone very special looking after you, Maisie. Not many people have that. Not many adults, even. You take care of Olivia, too. I will. Night, Uncle John. Good night, Maisie. I switched off the rotating bedroom lamp that had been casting dancing patterns of fairies and woodland creatures across the walls of the room, descending it into darkness. I pulled myself downstairs, my mind a howling tundra. The moment that I made it down in the living room, I made it right for the adjacent kitchen, swigging down a glass of water. I gasped like a man that had been crawling around the desert and had just stumbled across an oasis. I almost drowned trying to drink it all down. 
Seating myself down on shaky limbs, only one thought occupied my mind. What the hell had I just listened to? My first guess had been something age-inappropriate that she'd accidentally seen. Maybe a horror movie, which had already made an indent on her developing psyche. Jerry and I sneaked more than enough R-rated movies from his older brother's bedroom when we had been kids, which had led to more than a few childhood traumas. But there was too much conviction in her voice. She didn't sound confused at all. There hadn't been any bedroom at the end of the upstairs hall. I'd been to Jerry's house dozens of times before, enough to almost know every room, and I'd never seen or heard of it. There was only the bathroom there, and as far as I knew, Maisie was their first and only child. Jerry loved Maisie. He would never hurt her. I'd known him my entire life, and there hadn't been one flicker of violence in his eyes. He just wasn't that kind of guy. The hours ticked on as I sat there, along with the growing feeling of being watched by a pair of unseen eyes. As ridiculous as I knew it was, I couldn't help but imagine a small head peering around the doorway in the darkness at me, even though Maisie had been long put to bed. At the click of the door, I bolted upright, fingers digging into the armrest of where I'd been sitting. Jerry regarded my shock with a satisfied amusement, as he tiptoed through with a stumbling Annie. Both wore blissful smiles, tripping over their feet as what I guessed to be a half a bottle of wine wheeled through their systems. One too many scary movies, he quipped. I managed to smile. I'm looking at a horror show right now, I told him. He laughed behind his enclosed hand, eyes darting towards the shrouded upstairs landing. So, how is Maisie? I hope that she didn't give you too much trouble. No, I like a light. She's a good kid. No idea where she got that from, but it sure wasn't you. The usual banter was empty replaced by a persistent ache inside, which manifested in two words. Tell him. Inside, I was debating whether I was overreacting. Kids did say strange things, but this one I just couldn't ignore. Maybe it was the thought of hearing a fellow adult that would ease my own dread. I decided to let them enjoy themselves before I pressed further. This was the most relaxed I'd ever seen Jerry in a long time, and I wanted to let him savor that mood. I had no idea how to express through words what I had experienced tonight without freaking him out. So, how was your night? Amazing. God, just amazing. I, I feel like a new man. Listen, I'm sorry for being late. Traffic was insane coming back. I'll pay you extra for making you wait around. I waved my hand. You'll do no such thing. His voice drifted into the foreground, as Maisie's words still crept through my head. All the while, I was just waiting for something to jump out of the shadows. But nothing ever came. I'd never found myself so eager to leave his house. But I found myself pulled back by a sudden urge to go to the bathroom. I'd flicked on the lights before climbing the stairs, as much as I tried to convince myself there was nothing there. As I was nearing the top... I heard a creak of small feet on the landing. Looking up, I saw the shaded figure of a little girl in a white nightgown. I hitched a sigh of relief. Maisie, I chided. You know you're not supposed to be out of bed at this time. As I rubbed my own bleary eyes, the thought occurred that Maisie's pajamas were pink, 
not white. Her hair was short and blonde, not unkempt brown that fell over her eyes. Before I could even utter a word, the pale figure rushed off into the darkness of the corner down the hallway. I was already after her, not even understanding why. I wanted to catch up to her and find out that it was Maisie's idea of a joke. I wanted to finally put my fears to rest. I palmed along the wall, following the running pair of feet before my fingertips found the familiar bump of a light switch. Turning it on, I didn't find Maisie. From the soft breathing coming from the half-closed door behind me, she'd been asleep for hours. I flinched at the slightest creak my feet made against the floorboards. My vision was half-blurring, breaths short as if they were being squeezed out of me as my hands splayed against the solid walls for support. As I moved along, I came across an unfamiliar groove. Returning my eyes to the wall, I saw the black-and-white framed picture of a mountain against the grey floral wallpaper, one that hung there for as long as I could remember. However, the more I looked at it, the more I started to make out the shape of something solid hidden behind it, plastered behind the wild rose print, something wide and rectangular that almost looked like a, hey. A strangled gasp escaped my throat. I whirled around, but instead of a pale, stringy-haired ghost girl, stood Jerry. Though his shirt was ruffled and his tie was undone, half slung around his collar, he looked as collected as ever. Whoa, jumpy tonight, huh? He chuckled. I returned with a shaky laugh. You know, I've never been one for the dark. He slapped a hand on my shoulder. Hey, I just wanted to thank you for taking care of Macy tonight. You did a great job. She, she just adores you. She talks about you all the time. I've lost count of all the little pictures she'd drawn for you. We've got a few pinned up on our fridge if you wanted to have a look. His eyes fell over my head to where the picture sat, just a few inches over my skull. The carefree smile slid from his face as he sank his head into his hand. Jerry? When he lifted his head again, his eyes were dark and heavy with an emotion I'd never seen in him before. The closest I'd come to describing it was regret. He forced on a half-smile. I've never told anyone this before, he breathed. It still hurts too much for Annie to even talk about. But you're my best friend, you know that. You're the only one who'd understand. He inhaled. The reddish, inebriated tint to his face darkened. His eye slid furtively down. Maisie wasn't our first, he admitted. My whole body constricted, as if an invisible, ever-tightening rope had been looped around my torso. We tried so many times before until we had her and we were just so happy. She died when she was around Maisie's age. Brain bleed. Some kind of blood disorder. We almost gave up, but then Maisie came along. I listened along, my mouth dry. I never thought that chance would come again. I love Maisie even more for it. We almost called her after our first. Same as Annie's mother. I already knew what was coming. The word exited both our mouths at the same time. Olivia. There have been reports of people going insane, tearing out their tongues and swallowing them, entire towns laughing deep into the night 
and not stopping till the last one drops dead. Witnesses and reports say these people were smiling, a wide, stretching smile. It was discovered that it was caused by some virus that was found in the water supply. A cargo ship broke down in the wrong place and poisoned our city. I didn't find all of this out till later, till it was too late, till it started taking pieces of me away. It was my sister's birthday. She was wearing a glowing red dress and our aunts painted her face. She looked like a princess. She was in a wheelchair. An accident took her ability to walk a year ago. A drunk driver ran a red light as my sister was crossing the road. It left her paralyzed from the neck down. We went to a restaurant on her birthday, and all the waiters and waitresses were smiling. Big, bright smiles. It really dazzled the atmosphere, and my sister enjoyed it immensely. This is how you run a business. This is how you get customers. I won't lie, it got a little creepy when the waiters stared because they never stopped smiling. I didn't let it bother me. Today was my sister's day. The following days, I began to notice other people smiling, unusually broadly. My town wasn't a miserable town, but it definitely wasn't this, whatever this was. It quickly became unnerving. It soon became an epidemic of smiling people, and then they began acting strange. At night, I would hear inhuman screeching going on for hours. The police were called and it went away, but another would take its place. This went on for many nights. The police had to make rounds on the streets, but it didn't stop there. One by one, the reports of people losing their minds grew larger by the day, all of which had one thing in common, the fixated smile that seemed to be cut into their face. We stopped turning on the news because we knew what the stories were going to be about, the next more horrific than the last. We needed to stay positive for my sister's sake. Even that was getting difficult. Bodies... Uh, hundreds of bodies were found on the streets. Special cleanup crews were deployed to collect the bodies and dump them into a trash heap. Once the trash heap started to overflow, the authorities ordered to burn the bodies or throw them in the water to create more room. The air started to smell of burning pork and the clouds looked infected and sickly. Even the rain would taste like dishwater on good days. On bad days, it would taste like rotting carcasses. I suppose you could call this hell, but this isn't where hell began for me. Hell began when my sister started smiling. Hell began when my sister laughed through the night. Hell began when my sister stood up out of her wheelchair and started moving. Hell began when I realized there was nothing I could do but watch her as she descended into madness. Hell began when they collected my sister and burned her. Hell began when I could taste her in the rain. My upbringing was about as traditional as an upbringing gets. My parents were married. I had a younger sister. We lived in a nice suburban neighborhood. I had friends at school, all the trappings of a normal, healthy childhood. But there was one thing. One rule. One rule that was reiterated daily to my sister and I since the day we were able to understand what it meant. One rule that I swore by. Don't look out the windows after dark. 
Our house was, as I said, in a suburban neighborhood. It sat at the side of a cul-de-sac, the entirety of which was bordered by a small woodland area that separated it from the next neighborhood. It was a perfectly safe area. There wasn't anything immediately apparent that we might see if we looked out the windows at night. I abided by the rule, as did my sister. We didn't know any better. We figured if our mom and dad insisted upon it, there must be a good reason for them doing so. I didn't know that it wasn't a rule all families recognized. Until third grade. We'd had a substitute teacher one day just before winter, and that substitute teacher had elected to play a movie, and that movie was the right stuff. This movie had so entranced a classmate of mine, Ben, that when he came to school the next day, he brought with him the assembly manual to the telescope he'd convinced his father to buy him the night before. Ben was ecstatic, bragging to all the other kids who had enjoyed the movie about how it was set up in his room and how he was going to look at the flag on the moon and other feats when it got dark out that night. I questioned, rather matter-of-factly, just how he planned on doing that, considering he couldn't look out his windows, and unsurprisingly I was met with odd looks and a few awkward, confused laughs from kids who had no idea what I was talking about. Our parents had never told us exactly why we weren't supposed to look out the windows after dark. At the very least, they hadn't told us any real reason beyond just enough to get us to stop asking questions. Their favorite seemed to be, if you love your family, you won't look out the windows after dark. For a time, our windows had been boarded up. But neighbors had complained and the city had threatened to fine if they weren't taken down, so every night when the sun was setting... My parents would go around and use duct tape to make sure our blinds stayed shut, not wanting to be forever known as the weird neighbors. They would remove them and open the blinds every morning. When I got home from school the day that Ben had bragged about his telescope, I passed the question to my parents again. Why can't we look out our windows after dark? I got the same answer I always did and something inside me, some odd mixture of curiosity, embarrassment at what had happened at school, and doubt, made their answer unacceptable for the first time. For the first time, I didn't just blindly believe what they'd been telling me my whole life. That night, some time after my mom had kissed me on my forehead and told me goodnight, and my dad had put duct tape along the bottom of the pull-down window shade, I sat up in bed. I felt like I was doing something wrong, but I didn't know why. As such, I peeked my head into the hallway, making sure there was no glow from the TV emanating from my parents' room. When all felt secure, I went to the window in my room, a single window that faced the backyard. I took some deep breaths, mentally preparing myself to see some unholy hellscape that somehow arrived at dusk and packed up and left by dawn. I went to the side of the window where I could just barely pull the shade back, and with one final deep breath and blurred images of unimaginable horrors racing through my mind, I shut one eye and looked through. I saw trees. I saw my backyard, and past it I saw the trees that made up a thicket of woods that surrounded all the homes of the cul-de-sac. In the sky there were a few stars, which up to that point I had only ever seen in videos, or, if I happened to be outside after dark, 
For whatever reason, being outside after dark wasn't forbidden. The rule was strictly limited to looking out the windows, though my parents did their damnedest to make sure we were in before the sunset every night. I saw the moon. I sat back for a moment, thinking. There was nothing there, just the same things that were there during the day, only now at night. I was both disappointed and relieved, but more than anything, I was confused. I looked back through the space between the shades and the window frame again, and that's... When I saw it. Something dropped from a branch on one of the trees and hit the ground below it, lightning parallel to the ground. I squinted my one eye open to see what it was, but once it hit the ground, it didn't move anymore. I stared at that spot for what seemed like a long time, and just as I looked away, at that very same moment, whatever it was, sat up. When I looked back, I saw the silhouette of whatever it was just sitting straight up. Then it stood. Its legs wobbled like a baby deer as it started walking towards our house. Maybe it was the fact that I was a child, but I remembered it looked tall, upwards of seven feet. I watched the silhouette saunter towards our house, and I distinctly remember my heart beating harder with every step it took. I watched its thin, spindly arms sway and I remember its head looking all around from side to side, up and down, like it was observing the world for the first time. I wanted to look away, but I was terrified. The closer it got, the more sure-footed it became. Before long, it got close enough to trigger one of the motion sensors my dad kept back there, and the whole backyard was flooded with light. It wore no clothes. Its skin was an oily black, dark blue, and it looked like it was sweating profusely. I turned away, unsure of what to do. I was torn between this thing making its way towards our house and the prospect of telling my parents I'd broken their one rule. I sat in my bed, frozen. Tap, tap. My heart skipped a beat. My heart skipped a beat. I wasn't looking out the window anymore, but I could... Feel it just outside. Three more taps rang out. I closed my eyes, hoping against hope that it was all just a terrible nightmare. It knocked on my window harder. I don't know what compelled me, but I needed to look. I needed to see it. I peeked back through the space between the shade and the window frame. The overhang of the house was casting a shadow on it. But when I looked through the window... I was face to face with two eyes. They weren't eyes, not really. They were voids, holes completely absent of anything in them, that were somehow darker than the shadow. I jumped back from my window and fell to the floor in tears. I heard the crushing of leaves outside my window, crunching that move towards my parents' room. I sat there in shock, in fear, in shame and regret as that thing went to my parents' window. It seemed like an eternity that I sat there waiting for something, anything, to happen. Then I heard my mom shriek. Her screams were accompanied by my dad yelling, No, 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 no! I listened as their footsteps thudded through their room and into the hallway. It sounded like thunder as they quickly made their way from their room to mine. My door flew open, and my dad saw me on the ground crying. 
He reached down, yanked me up to my feet, grabbing me by my shoulders and shouting in my face, What did you do? Why did you do that? What the hell did you do? Between sobs, my mom put her hand on my dad's shoulder. My dad turned to her and she whispered, I don't want him to see. My dad took a deep breath and turned back to me. He looked me directly in my eyes and said, You need to stay here. I'm not kidding. Do not leave your room. I nodded in agreement. My dad lingered for a moment, and as he finally stood up, I heard him under his breath, God, no, please. They closed the door behind them, and I listened as they turned down the hallway from their room, towards my sister's. I listened as they woke her up and walked her out of her room, making their way through the living room and towards the front door of the house. Tap, tap, tap. My blood went cold, and despite knowing that doing so had grave consequences, I felt the need to look back out the window. I felt the need to at least try to understand what was happening. I peeked again and was met with that same visage, the empty eyes. But something was different this time. There was another void. Another part of it that was darker than the shadows that covered it. I'll never know for sure, but at the time I could tell that it was smiling. It wasn't some huge gaping maw, not some clown-like exaggerated smile, but like it was pleased. I remember I got scared all over again almost immediately and looked away. I heard my front door open. There was a lull. A moment of total silence that was soon broken by my mom's violent sobbing. I cried just as hard in my room. I heard the crunching of leaves again, this time farther away from my window, up the side of the house towards the front. I heard my dad's voice pleading, Please take me, take both of us, please, you, you can't do this, I'm sorry, please. I heard no response, just more leaves crunching this time simultaneously going both towards the front door and away from the house. I heard the front door close and footsteps coming back down the hallway. One set of footsteps continued walking to my parents' room while one stopped outside my door. You're not the first to do it. I heard my sullen dad's voice say from the other side of the room, When you have kids... I hope you make it more clear than we did that they can never, ever, ever look out the windows after dark. It's just something our family can't do. I love you. He walked back to his room and closed the door, and I heard him break down alongside my mother. I sat back up and peeked out the window one more time, the curiosity still eating away at me, only now mixed with an unprecedented fear, a feeling of hopelessness, regret a bottomless despair. They disappeared into the shadows of the trees, and that was the last time I saw my sister. It was the last time I looked out a window after dark. Last week I found out my wife is pregnant. I'm going to make it more clear than my parents did. I'm going to tell them exactly what will happen if they disobey that rule, because them knowing the consequences of doing so is more important than keeping them from hearing something that might scare them. They won't look out the windows after dark. Lung cancer, stage 3, 
inoperable. Those were the words that spelled out my ultimate fate. And while it wouldn't be a particularly original way to die, the irony wasn't lost on me. I'd never touched a cigarette during my short lifespan, despite growing up in a household where pretty much everyone inhaled those toxic fumes, including my own parents. Of course, they are both alive and healthy. Even to this day, they never suffered any consequences for any of their unhealthy habits. Not even a dent put in their lung capacity. Destiny truly is a fickle bitch. There I sat at the doctor's office, speechless, after hearing the diagnosis. I'd just gone in for a persistent cough from what I thought would be nothing more than a common cold. In all honesty, I didn't feel that sick, but my wife had convinced me to go for a checkup regardless, and because of that checkup, I'd just been told that in less than a year, I would be dead. I've never been much of a religious person. If asked, I'd put myself somewhere on the agnostic spectrum of not knowing what the hell is going on. That being said, I didn't fear death. I had spent too many nights thinking about my eventual departure from this world and had accepted that life was a precious resource that would inevitably expire. I just didn't think it would be so soon. My one true quarrel with death was leaving my family behind. At the not-so-ripe age of 42, I still hadn't saved up enough money to keep us afloat in case of emergency. And while my wife still worked, neither of us made enough to support a child on our own. And it just so happened we had a ten-year-old son together. That's why I started praying, begging, bargaining for a second chance. Each night I tried a different god, desperately looking for otherworldly answers, regardless of religion or relevance in modern society. I was desperate. The doctors offered a combo treatment of radiation and chemotherapy. Of course, none would extend my life in any meaningful way, but I started the treatment nonetheless, Maybe that, hoping that maybe someone could offer a miracle cure. But of course, my hopes were left unanswered. In the beginning of this year, my body had deteriorated to the point where I was nothing but a loose sack of skin draped over a malformed set of bones. I knew I only had a few weeks left before the cancer that had gestated within me, growing with each passing day, finally won the battle. When breathing became little more than an agonizing chore, serving only to initiate a cascade of painful coughs, I ended up bedridden next to an oxygen tank. Then, finally, on July 29, 2019, as I tried to get dressed and make the short journey from my bed to the little breakfast table down the hall in my hospital, everything suddenly disappeared beneath my feet. I started falling. One second I was traversing the hospital hallway, oxygen tank dragging on behind me, and with a final gasp my pain was simply erased from existence. The memory of my disease was nothing more than a faint dream, and my life became a part of a very distant past. I had died, I realized that much, but the concepts of life and death themselves meant little to me in the grand scheme of things. Yes, I had been a part of society on earth, a note in the everlasting symphony of life, but my part had passed and the song continued on without me, while I moved on to the next stage. I floated or sank, 
It was hard to tell directions apart in my new weightless state. It almost seemed like an ocean. The deep blue hues surrounding me on all sides with bubbles of flickering light floating by, delightfully circling around me as I moved towards the brightest thing I'd ever seen. Though the light was blinding, I could sense other beings surrounding me. I turned to look at them, squinting my eyes to get a better grasp of what they were. They didn't resemble any creature ever walking upon Earth's surface, but I could tell that they had once been human just like myself. They were happy, smiling, without having faces, voicelessly laughing. I waved at them and they greeted me using nothing more than the warmth of their souls. I still had my body, not yet processed by the afterlife, but I felt healthy, no longer ravaged by the tumors within my chest. Once I got close enough to feel the heat of the light, my periphery darkened, and the joyful creatures dancing around me had been replaced by shadows staring intently at my passing. The new creatures weren't people, but beings emitting the most dreadful sense of sadness and anger. They hated me for being able to touch the light, while they were forever trapped in the shadows. One of them reached out for me, its arms stretching impossibly far beyond its confinement. It grabbed onto my leg, pitch-black nails digging deep into my flesh, tearing muscles from bone as I silently cried in agony. Before I could get a grasp of my situation, another pair of hands grabbed my arm, tearing it straight from its socket. A third pair wrapped around my chest, digging deep into my lungs, rummaging around where the tumors had once lived. More hands joined in, and before long, I was enveloped by hundreds of shadows, all tearing away at my limbs and organs. But as all meat was stripped from my body, the hands had nothing more to hold on to, and I was let go. I was jolted awake, back in the hospital, gasping pathetically for air as the cancer once more inhabited most of my lung tissue. My family stood close by, sobbing at my demise. I really had died, but only for about a minute. Silence quickly filled the room as they noticed I was still alive, doctors wearing shocked expressions and horrified stares from my son. They were surprised, confused, as no attempt had been made to resuscitate me. My death had been expected for so long that keeping me alive would be nothing more than a cruel joke. Yet once again I lived. I had been so close to eternal salvation, but something had pulled me away, denied my entrance to whatever lay beyond. Of course, with the cancer relentlessly spreading throughout my body, I wasn't meant to stay. Despite the bittersweet taste of my revival, the locals hailed it as a miracle, and multiple news stations wanted to share my story, profit from it. I promptly declined. I didn't want to tell anyone what I saw on the other side, and I was in too much pain to accept it as a miracle. As I stabilized, they moved me to a hospice care facility. Death was still lingering around the corner, but they said I might have a couple more weeks to spend with my family, if nothing more. They'd already said goodbye once, and now that cruel trick of nature made them do it twice. My wife didn't smile once in the following days. She wore a tired expression on her face. Her eyes were sunken, but I couldn't blame her. Taking care of a dying man is no easy task, 
much less for someone who has to do it twice. My son, on the other hand, would not stop crying. He was too young to understand, but he knew I wouldn't stay for much longer. Two weeks came and went in the blink of an eye, each day spent in misery, dreading what awaited on the other side. Then one morning I simply didn't wake up. Once again the world was done with me. I had been tossed away from existence and just like before, I started falling through time and space into an infinite void. The shapeless being still floated in the peripheries, lights that once wandered the earth, but this time there were no smiles to greet me, no joy filling my soul to the brim. They were angry at me. I had returned to a place I didn't belong, and now my journey was one no longer welcome. I was pushed further towards the light, away from the once blissful companions, and it wasn't long before I saw the shadows again. There the light lingered, just out of reach, so close I could almost touch it, when a pair of twisted hands grabbed at me, digging into my flesh. This time they didn't settle with violence. They started whispering, begging for me to pull them out of their prisons, to take them with me. Millions of voices rushed through my head, promising it was all a misunderstanding, that they had not meant to hurt me. They wanted nothing more than the warmth of the light. Yet, with their pleas for salvation, they tore into me, ripping me apart from within. I couldn't help them. I didn't know how, and with that their voices turned from prayers to anger. They shouted obscenities within my head, filling it with hatred while telling me what would happen to my family once I truly perished. In a split second, a vision of my family's future became burned into my memory, as if it had already happened. Depression would force my wife out of her job and into a battle with drug addiction which eventually melted over to our son as he grew up. Unable to escape, my son would get expelled from school after school, ruined by the death of his father and his absent-minded mother. At the age of 16, my son would get into drugs himself and ultimately die in a horrific car crash. That was the summary. Cascade of events that followed my death, but the shadows didn't stop there. They promised a way out, that they could save me, and my family, if I only took them with me towards the light, but I could never reach the light. As desperately as I longed to just move on, I could never quite get there, always torn to shreds long before I touched it. Each brief visit to the promised afterlife left me nothing more than a barren fragment of thought, alone in a world that didn't belong to me. No matter what they did, nothing happened, and suddenly I was once again dragged away from the light, back to an excruciating life. Since my diagnosis, I've died a total of 16 times. Each time I am further ripped apart by the shadows, each time rejected by the light and flung back to my cancer-riddled body. My family has grown tired of my presence. My once-loving wife loathes my very existence, and my son is beyond traumatized. I can barely move, I can't feed myself, and I need help just getting from bed to the toilet. Because by now the cancer has spread everywhere, 
The doctors say I couldn't possibly be alive, yet here I am. It is even starting to eat away at my brain as well, taking away not only my physical body, but the memory of what I used to be along with it. I prayed, begged, and bargained for more time with my family, and I guess something answered. As a result, I was given infinite life, just not a functioning body to go with it. But infinite agony isn't what truly haunts me, nor the fact that I've been rejected by the afterlife itself, because soon I won't have a mind to worry with. What truly frightens me is that I now see the shadows while I'm awake. I hear their whispers at night as the pain medication slowly lulls me to sleep. They're thanking me, because in their whispers of lies and deceit, their false desires of entering the light, what they really wanted was our world, and by returning to life I've brought them here. They needed me to survive. They needed a vessel. To come here and extinguish the light we live in. To take away the small amount of happiness that still exists on Earth. They've already taken mine, infecting my family with their horrific purpose and desires. I thought my wife had simply suffered one too many days due to my illness. But it's the shadow within her that has turned her to the hateful creature she's become. She went from a loving spouse, taking care of me in my darkest days, to spewing vile hatred in my direction for each time I returned from death. She hated me, and she hated my son for being a part of me. Every day she would laugh at my agony telling me that I hadn't done anything right. I couldn't even die properly. In between the barrages, she'd let slip who she had really become. She thanked me for releasing her from her dark abyss, smiling wide as she did. It wasn't her talking. It was the creatures. Of course, my son had been infected too. He quickly followed after my wife when he stopped speaking and eating only rotting away in his room, neglected by his sick mother. Once he had become as emaciated and weak as myself, he finally spoke, telling me this would only be the beginning. Soon the rest would come through, another shadow for each trip I take to the beyond. I'm stuck in my broken body, watching everything I love fade away. So I'm writing all of this down in an attempt at warning everyone, of what exists beyond the boundaries of life. I need my last deed to be something remotely useful before my mind vanishes with the rest of my decaying body. Perhaps my only hope is to destroy my body, break down everything I am, so that no shadow can infest me. But I'm too weak, too frail even to leave my bed. Please don't let the darkness spread. I'm sorry for bringing it here and my punishment is to stay alive and watch, half-witted and broken, when all I want is to simply leave this place. I want to keep falling.